A very good morning to you all this morning. We're going to turn and open our Bibles now. And as we come to, to do that, if you turn with me, please. And uh, our reading this morning is from Philippians in chapter 2 and picking up at verse 12. And we'll be reading from 12 through to 18. And uh, Willie will be preaching from this text uh, later in the service. You can either um, read you can either listen along with me as I, as I read, or you can refer to that in the diary. Or if, you're, if you have a Bible or other device in which there's a, an electronic Bible within it, then please do look that up and join with me. Be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, lovely to be with you. And uh, like Nigel, I hope my voice lasts the pace and uh, the guys up the back will crank things up if, uh, if it's required. So we're going to be uh, speaking from the passage that uh, was read to us earlier on in Philippians chapter 2. And as always, I think you'll find it helpful to have that open so that you can check that uh, I'm not making things up. But uh, what we're trying to do is allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves. What I'd like to speak to you really about this morning is um, found in a phrase from, from verse 12. It's about working out your own salvation. That's the kind of subject of, uh, of the talk this morning. Um, Paul is concerned. He's the writer, obviously, uh, of this letter. I mean, he's got reason to be concerned. Uh, he's in prison. He's in Rome, shackled to some Roman soldiers. But that's not really the reason that he's concerned. His worry is because he's heard some news about his friends, the Philippians. You know, they're, they're back in Macedonia, northern Greece. And one of their numbers, if you flick down uh, chapter 2, you'll come up against the name of Epaphroditus, has, um, has brought a, a financial gift to him. You know, they, they've been involved with Paul. They've been partners in the gospel almost from the first day right up until now. Um, and, and that's warmed his heart. It's touched him. But part of what Epaphroditus has said has caused some anxiety and concern. Because he's brought news that things are not just quite as they should be as far as the church back there is concerned, that they're imploding a little bit. There, there, are, there are real problems. There's, there's conflict. Uh, there's arguments. Uh, there's, there's a lot of selfishness 
Um, and, uh, you know, he actually has to name a couple of individuals. If you go over to chapter 4 and verse 2, there are two ladies in particular known as Yodia and Syntyche, and, uh, you know, they're kind of, uh, they're named and shamed there because of the fact that they're just not getting on at all. And, you know, Paul goes back in his mind, and he remembers the early days uh, and how things were when he first of all went to Philippi. I mean, the great thing about Philippi was that it, in fact, was the very first place in the continent of Europe that responded to the gospel. You know, Paul crosses into Europe. Um, the man from Macedonia that he saw in the vision come over into Macedonia and help us, and he, and he, and he went. And, um, I mean, it wasn't without his challenges. Um, when he went there initially, yes, there were some ladies he met down by the riverside who prayed. One of them, Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, was the very first convert. He was eventually arrested and put in prison. And, um, you know, there were some people, you know, like the jailer himself and his family, who remarkably and dramatically came to faith in Christ, despite the real difficulties of the time. Um, and Paul, with fondness, obviously remembers his contact and his friendship and all that happened. But now, now we've got this, this issue that is grieving his heart. And so, um, he asks for you know, some ink and pen and paper to be brought, and it must have been a wee bit difficult for him, you know, with the chains on his, on his wrists and the, the soldiers next to him to, to pen these four chapters or so of this letter that is sent back to them. And basically what he's trying to do, if I can, you know, give you a little bit of summary here of chapter two, he says the important thing for you is not, not to have selfishness, not to have selfish ambition, not to have jealousies and, and conflict and negativity and argumentativeness and just difficulties and hassles uh, within your relationships in the church. We're, we're Christ's people, he says. And what we need to have is the mind, the attitude, the mindset of Christ himself. And that's the, that's the first part of chapter 2. And he gives them the example of the Lord Jesus, who although he was in very nature God, you know, didn't, didn't hang on to that, didn't consider that something to be held on to, but he made himself of no reputation, not concerned with his reputation, and took upon himself the very form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he hum humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death upon the cross. He says, that's the mindset. That's the attitude that we need to have. And, and where we've taken up our reading today is, is a continuation of that very point when he says, I want you to work out your salvation. You need to work this out. Now, we have to try and get to grips with what this means. What does it mean? When he says to them, and when we think about that today, about working out our salvation, well, it means this, that salvation is something that's not to be kept in. It's to be lived out. It's to be worked out into the details of people's everyday life. 
Christianity is not some sort of compartmentalized thing that at certain stages and certain days of life, we, we wheel it out, and it's, it's on show and on display on these occasions. No, he says, this, this has to be worked out in every detail and in every part. It's something that doesn't just remain as a theory or as an idea or as something that's of academic interest. This is something that has to impact every part of life. It has to be worked out into our lives. It's a real thing if we are a child of God and we have His salvation. And so, he says, this is the point. The point for all of us is that salvation needs to be worked out in life. Now, what it doesn't mean is I want you to try and figure this out. This is a difficult concept. You know, this is something really hard. It's complicated. It's complex. And and, and we need to try and work this salvation out somehow or another because we don't actually know what it means. He's not meaning that at all. You know, because the great thing, of course, about the gospel of Christ, the, the gospel of salvation that he proclaimed is that this is something that actually is not complicated at all. It is straightforward. It's uh, a child can understand it. We used to sing the old hymn, you know, tell me the old, old story of, of unseen things above. You know, a child can understand this. What are the basics of the gospel? The basics of the gospel are, are these. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of God's standards. Point number two, God in His mercy has come in the person of His Son to deal with my sin by taking my place upon the cross at Calvary. And point number three, if I trust in Him with all my heart, as my Savior, turning from myself and embracing Him by faith, God will forgive me and will grant me eternal life. I mean, that's the gospel. It's simple. We don't need to do very much in working that out or figuring that out. That is it. That is not what He means when He uses this phrase. And secondly, what He doesn't mean is You've, you've got to work for this salvation. You know, you've got to try your best for this. There's, there's, a, there's a lot that you need to be doing here. There's an awful lot that you need to be contributing here. You've really got to put this in. You've got to sweat it out, you know, as far as good works and religion and charitable stuff. And, you know, you just got to, you just got to put the hard yards in or you won't ever receive this salvation. You've got to work this. He doesn't mean that at all. I mean, the wonderful thing about the gospel of Christ, and the thing that distinguishes it from from every other form of religion is this, that um, rather than saying do, you know, you need to do, the gospel is all about done, what Christ has done already, and me accepting that. You know, it is by grace, he writes elsewhere, that we are saved 
through faith. It's the gift of God. It's, it's not of works, or we would boast about it. God delivers that to us. He presents that to us as His wonderful gift of grace, and it, uh, it has nothing to do with my ability. And that, that's the great leveler. We can come with empty hands and receive the gift of God's salvation without feeling we've got to merit it or earn it by the work of our own um, hands. Now, I want to see a word about, about salvation, working out in the true sense, living out your salvation. Salvation is a tremendous word. Let's just remind ourselves, salvation does not mean improvement, self-improvement. Salvation does not mean inspiration. What it does mean is being delivered. It means being, being rescued. It means being, being saved from the guilt and from the consequences of my sins, my broken um, life that has broken the laws of God. It's being saved from all of that. And I want to be very clear that that, that is exactly what it means. And that's why, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was given the name Jesus at His birth. When the angels said, you'll, you'll, you'll call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. The name Jesus means Jehovah, who is the Savior. And the Lord Jesus became known as the Savior, the great Deliverer. And of course, Paul used this concept himself, actually, when he had visited Philippi on that first occasion. He's in the prison with his compadre, Silas. Um, they're in the innermost prison. They're, they're shackled. They're singing praises to God at midnight. The earthquake occurs. The doors fly open. The jailer thinks everyone has run away, and they, uh, he, he comes in. And, and he asks the question to the missionaries, sirs, I mean, what must I do to be saved? Now, when he said that, he wasn't thinking, this masonry is about to fall on my head. You know, how can, I, how can I be saved from this? How can I get out of this situation? And he doesn't mean, I'm in big trouble from my bosses, the Romans, you know, the people who are under my charge have all potentially escaped. I'm going to be the one who will be held responsible, responsible for this. How can I be saved from this situation? He didn't mean either of these things. What he did mean, because he'd heard them, and because he knew why they were there, and he knew what was happening in the town, and he had been convicted about the gospel of Christ and his need for it, he meant when he said, what, what must I do to be saved? He was talking about his soul and his need for salvation of his soul. And Paul replies, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how you're saved. And, and he was saved. He believed along with all his household, and salvation came to that house. And so, he is aware of that word and 
in all its importance. But Paul now is making the point. That salvation that you received back in those days, that salvation, it needs to grow. It needs to develop. It needs to work itself out. Now, this is not just a kind of isolated point that Paul makes. This is throughout our whole Bible. We could be turning, for instance, to James's letter. You see slightly different vocabulary. Uh, he says, faith without works is dead. You know, you, you, you say you got faith, and yet... Um, nobody can see the evidence of that. Well, I'm not quite sure what kind of faith that is in anybody's book, but I would call it, he says, I would call that a dead faith. Faith that has no accompanying works. Because you see, true and genuine faith will always work its way out it will always show itself. It will always demonstrate its reality by the change in a person's life. And so, James says, you know, if somebody uh, is in need, you come up against them, and you, you kind of close your heart to them, and you say, well, the Lord bless you. You know, I'll be praying for you. On your way you go. But you don't do anything to help them. I mean, how Where's the reality of that faith? It has to work its way out. And so here, in Philippians, he's saying the same thing. And he's saying it in a very specific way. We're not being general. We're not being wide, wide as the ocean here. He's being very specific when he says, this is the way that your salvation needs to work its, itself out. It is in this area of conflict. It's in this area of moaning and grumbling and complaining, of negativity, of selfishness, of ambition. It's all that stuff that has taken a grip of your lives as individuals, and it's now impacting on your relationship within the church. Your, your lives are characterized by this, and the church is crumbling because this is a characteristic of you now. Your salvation, it needs to work its way out in that kind of situation and change that kind of attitude. He says, what you need to have is, a, is an overarching sense of joy in what you are and what you have received. Look at what He has done for you. You know, if we can quote some of the Old Testament Psalms. You know, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we, we were like those that, that dreamed. And then they said about us, the Lord has done great, great things for them. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us of which we are glad. They had lost sight of all of that. That's why again and again throughout this, this letter, he, he uses the word joy or rejoice. Look at chapter 3 at the beginning. Re rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice 
in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. One of the best uh, titles I've read for this letter is uh, Philippians, Joy from the Jail. You know, that was, that was Paul. And, and he's, he's trying to say to them, we need to get a little bit of perspective here. I know things may well be difficult, but remember what the Lord has done for you. He saved your soul. He loves you. He's given His Son for you. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's given you the hope of eternal glory that you'll be with Him in heaven one day. He's given you so many things. We need to learn to rejoice in the Lord and in His salvation. And that, of course, is the point that's being made. The point and the emphasis is that the rejoicing is to be in the Lord, joy in Christ and in what He has done. Now, anybody's situation and circumstances can be tricky. Of course, they can be challenging. We can look at things that are relatively mundane in the grand scheme of things. We might think that, you know, my, my, my job could be a little bit more interesting than it is. Uh, maybe that promotion that I thought I would get but hasn't come my way. Um, you know, how do I deal with that kind of thinking that I'm not, I'm not respected or I'm not valued in my place of work? And that's getting to me, and I'm becoming a little bit negative because of that. Maybe in the, in the home situation, uh, I feel that, you know, we're, we're kind of we're bursting out of this size of house, and, you know, it would be nice to have a place that was a little bit bigger, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and I'm not too happy about where I am, and the school's not great, and, you know, the, 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 the friends my children have are, are a bit negative, and I worry about, and we could go on and on, and there, there are the bigger things, and we're not, of course, in any sense trying to minimize the difficulties of people's lives. You know, people going through tragedies, personal tragedies and, and bereavements and, and loss, and we look at the wider world, and we look at the awful things that are happening. And, and it's very difficult just in looking at that to say, oh, let, let's, let's paint a Cheshire cat, grin upon our faces, and pretend that all the world is well. We have to be realistic about that. But the point that he is making is that there is joy in Christ. There is rejoicing that is in the Lord that sustains you when everything else goes south. One of the best examples of it, and something you might want to turn to later on today, is the conclusion of the book of Habakkuk in our Old Testament. And Habakkuk uh, expresses himself in a day when his, his country is being invaded. And um, it's an agricultural country, you know, and, and, he, and, he, and he, he talks about the destruction and the devastation that is taking place. And this is how he puts it, if I can remember it. He says, although the fig tree doesn't blossom and there be no uh, fruit on the vine, the produce uh, of the olive fail and there be no flock in the field. Though the herd be, be taken away from the field, there be nothing at all in the stalls, 
Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. That, that's Habakkuk. I will, re, I will joy in God. That is working out your salvation into the circumstances of your life when things are difficult around you. Now, there's a couple of other points about working out your salvation that he makes here that I think are helpful. Now, if you, if you notice in verse 12, he says, I want you to do this not just in my presence, but when I'm absent. Now, you can appreciate, you know, if, if Paul was up here giving the talk to the, to the people in Philippi, that they would all be potentially motivated and psyched up by what he's saying. He comes down afterwards and walks along the people, shakes their hand, and he's mixing with them, and he, he drives his point home. And, it, you know, it's relatively easy in his presence, you know, to keep going with this kind of attitude and, and obeying what the teaching is. But the, the proof of the pudding, really, is, yeah, well, how do, how do I do that, and how do I react when, when he's not around? And I'm, I'm on my own and I'm in my, my room in, in, in the house, or I'm in the midst of everything else, and how do I do it when it's just me? And of course, that is a test of true maturity and of true obedience, and that is a challenge to all of us. You know, on our own, with me and the Word of God before God, to take these things, not just because somebody tells me to do it, but because I am convicted that this is the thing to do. I mean, I can remember a few years ago, um, I was in, in Malawi, and um, we, were, we were teaching some pastors some stuff. And um, as I was reading through the passage, I could can, I can realize that there was some little kind of hustle and bustle going on here. And at the end of it all, after just reading the passage, they all said, oh, you, you, you need to tell us what to do here. You know, you, you, you just need to tell us the right thing to do here. And I remember saying, well, I'm, I'm actually not going to tell you what to do. Because if I tell you what to do today, and then I'm off next week, and the next guy comes along and tells you something different, then maybe just because it's him, you'll do it as well. What we need to all do is we need to read this for ourselves. And we need to think about it for ourselves and to make it our own. And because it is it, it's something that's touched our heart, then we do it and it becomes real. And so this is a real challenge, isn't it, to all of us? Not just because, you know, we're keeping somebody happy or we're pleasing somebody. In my absence, you know, the maturity of following through. The next thing, though, is this. He says... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. That's the way this has to work. And, and, and the way that attitude is there is because there is a realization that it's God that's working within me. You know, this idea of work out your salvation, it's not like, you know, you go to the parents' evening at school and, and they say, must try better, you know, try your hardest, you know, on you go, work with it. I mean, that's not what it's like in the Christian life. 
I mean, if you go to Colossians chapter 2, he talks about the ideals of our world. You know, the people who were teaching this. Uh, you don't touch this stuff. You don't handle that. You don't taste that. You know, here are the rules and, re- and the regulations of life. Uh, we'll, we'll lay them out for you. And Paul says, it doesn't work. They might be nice rules and regulations, but it doesn't provide you the strength or the power to follow through on it. What does provide the power is the gospel. I mean, that's the point that he's making. You work out your salvation, but you do it with a sense of fear and trembling because what you're realizing is that it's not you. It's not your strength. It's God who's working in you. He gives you the will. He gives you the ability. It's the work of Christ. And of course, this is the great reality of the gospel of Christ, that when a person comes to Christ by faith and is saved, at that moment, God by His Spirit comes to indwell the life and the soul of an individual. I mean, that's the reality of it. The great God of heaven comes to indwell my soul and changes my heart and life and gives me the strength and the ability. It's God that is working within me. I mean, that's the great, the great teaching of, of John 15 when Jesus said, I am the vine. And, and if you're connected to me by faith, well, you're like the branches. And what actually happens is my life, the sap of the vine, it actually flows through you. And the fruit that comes at the end of that branch only comes there because of the life that came from me through you. And that's why the fruit of our lives, the the working out of our salvation, the things that happen in my life, it's because it's the life of Christ. It's not me. It's Christ within me. Now, that, that's a, a, a remarkable thing, but that is the reality of what Christian living is all about. And so, with a sense of, of fear and trembling, we work out our salvation, specifically so that we no longer grumble and complain so that we no longer are dominated by selfish ambition, but, but we're changed. A friend of mine um, told me his, his grandfather from darkest Lanarkshire had a, a saying which he felt could be applied to virtually every church. He said that there are three groups of people. Number one, there are the scalpers. All right, these are people who are always scalping people and criticizing them and telling them, you know, off. And then, secondly, there are the yelpers, all right, people who are always moaning uh, and complaining. And then, thirdly, there are the helpers, all right? And these are the people, of course, that we all, we all want to have around us. And so, working out your salvation hopefully takes us beyond being a scalper or a yelper to becoming a helper uh, within the church. That's certainly what he was hoping for, for here. Now, just in closing, 
This digital clock is kind of throwing me here, you know, compared to the normal one, but I think we're on track. Just to close, um, there are two illustrations in this passage that he employs. I'd just like them uh, to be brought to our attention. Now, the first one is down in verse number uh, 15, where he says, if you do all of this, if you work things out, your salvation in this particular way, you become a true child of God, like God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And here it is, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Illustration number one. Shining like a light. I mean, it actually means like a star. All right, like a star up in the sky, twinkling away, showing light. You never thought you would be described in that way, did you, when you came in here today, that you would be told that you were a star? Well, that's what he's saying. We, we can be stars in working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. We can be like a star that shines a light in the midst of a dark world. Now, of course, this is a, a great analogy that's frequently used in the Bible about Christ himself fundamentally who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus presents himself in that way, doesn't he? You know, there's darkness all around. No matter what people say, what their, their opinions are, what the talking heads say, what all the stuff is pumped out is telling us, there's an awful lot of darkness and an awful lot of distortion and confusion, and Jesus presents himself as the light in all of that. Here's the way. Here's clarity. You know, here's wisdom. Here's guidance. A clear, shining light. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of salvation, have the light of life and clarity from that. But he, he also says to his people, his disciples, you are the light of the world, a reflected light. You know, you're not meant to be uh, hiding this under the bed, hiding it under a bushel. You're like a city that's set on a hill. And we want people to behold your good works. Let your light shine so that when people behold your good works, they will glorify my Father who is in heaven. And so, that's what he's saying here. Work this out. Let your light shine. In this way, you'll be like a star shining in this generation. The second illustration, final one, is down in verse number 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, a drink offering. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have to go back into the Old Testament uh, to understand this. You know, they had their sacrificial ceremonial system of wor wor worshiping God. And as we know, the majority of these things were, were animal sacrifices. They would come along to the priest, bring a lamb or a goat or whatever, and, and that would be the, 
That would be the sacrifice offered upon an altar to God. Now, the interesting thing was this, that very often there would be a secondary offering along with that one, and it was often called a drink offering, bottle of wine. And at the same time as the animal was put on top, they would pour the wine over the top as well. Now, that symbolized a couple of things. It actually symbolized joy. You know, wine was a symbol of joy. That there was a sense of rejoicing that, you know, this animal's being offered on my behalf. That means God will accept me. I will be forgiven. But, but one of the other things that it symbolized was just the fact that it was a secondary offering. It was a, a lesser, it was a subsidiary offering. And, and that's the sense in which he's using it here. What he's saying here is, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy, says Paul, to take that position here. Even if I am offered as a drink offering on the, on the main sacrifice of your faith, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. I, I, I will rejoice in that. He said, I hope you see that. And that, he said, that is, exactly, that is exactly the way that you should be functioning now as you work out your salvation. You should be looking upon yourself as being like a drink offering. You're not, you're not the main event. You're not center stage. You know, you're not the big thing. Take the second place. Be the drink offering, the secondary subsidiary point of sacrifice, and be, be, be quite happy in that. that. That is true service. That is the Christian way. That is the way that Christ acted. That is the way that Paul himself looked on things. That's the way that Timothy and Epaphroditus men mentioned further down the chapter. This is the way of Christ. It's the drink offering way. And a lot of us need to learn that time and time again. You know, my father used to say this, it takes more grace than tongue can tell to play the second fiddle well. And, and that's true, isn't it? You know what it's like in the orchestra? You know, at the end, they play the big finale, and uh, of course, they all troop off or they put their instruments down. And what they're hoping for after the big applause and people rise to their feet is the encore comes, you know. So they, they play it again. And then the, the man who's the conductor takes his bow and then he gestures to the leader of the orchestra who very frequently is the first violinist and she stands up and she takes her bow as well. They never ask the second or the third violinist to stand up or the second trumpeter or whatever. You know, this, this is basically what's being said here. Be quite happy to be the second fiddle. You know, you're doing it before the Lord and the Lord sees and the Lord knows and the Lord, He will reward for that. And so, this, this is what He's driving at. When I was in Sunday school, one of the songs that we used to sing, and I can still, of course, remember it, was a song about joy. And it said, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this is what it means, Jesus first, yourself last, and, and others in between. I mean, that, that's, that's very true. It's, it's not difficult to work it out in that sense, 
but it's necessary to work it out in the real sense, to work out our salvation this week in our family, among our neighbors, in our workplace, in our church. Great necessity so that things don't revert to cynicism or difficulty or hassle or implode to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we might be lights shining in this generation so that we might be like a drink offering poured out as a subsidiary thing but for the glory of God. Now may God bless His Word to our hearts. Uh, Let's bow our hearts in, in prayer. So Lord, we pray you touch our hearts and lives. You speak to us that we might respond and might go from this place not just with a vague idea of what your word says, but with this necessity of, with fear and trembling, working out this salvation in this specific area of our lives, whether that be personally, individually, or within a church setting. Lord, may your heart, your, your word touch all our lives and change us for Christ's sake. Amen.